Several years ago, I experienced one of the darkest and most difficult periods of my life. I was going through a painful divorce and figuring out how to be a single mom in New York City. But my reaction to my circumstances was above and beyond what could be attributed to just those things. And this was before the pandemic started, so I couldn't even blame it on that. I was experiencing symptoms that were so extreme that I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I found myself at the bottom of a pit of darkness and despair that I couldn't get myself out of. It was so bad that I was only sleeping two hours per night for many months and no over-the-counter medicines or prescription medications could touch my anxiety or insomnia. And I tried them all. I had already spent 12 years in talk therapy. I went to graduate school to become a therapist. Um, I read just about every self-help book ever published, and I attended more than a dozen professional conferences and workshops dedicated to psychological health and well-being. And in spite of all those things and how much they had helped me in previous circumstances, I was at a loss as to how I could have ended up here and how stuck I was and unable to recover. In my desperation, I reached out to support groups and online forums filled with people who had been through similar things. And through asking people who had since recovered what had helped them the most, I came up against one of my greatest fears. Some of the people I spoke to on the phone, because by now the pandemic had started and face-to-face -face meetups were impossible, they told me that although talk therapy and prescription medications and other forms of professional help had really helped them in the past, when it came to some of their struggles, the thing that gave them the most sustainable relief was a rich and rewarding spiritual life that connected them to themselves and the world around them. I was both intrigued and terrified when I heard these words because one of the other greatest struggles of my life was leaving the religion that I was raised in, Mormonism, and the resulting shattering of my identity, my connection to anything spiritual, and it felt like my ability to trust in anything except for cold, hard facts. Not that there's anything wrong with trusting in verifiable facts, but I felt that there was something missing that I wanted, and maybe even something that I felt I needed in my experience of my inner world. I'd spent many years in search of an inner life to replace the one I lost when I left the religion of my faith, of my youth, including attending a 10-day silent meditation retreat, studying at a postgraduate program for the psychology of religion and spirituality, and yet again, reading just about every book I could get my hands on about it. I was hopeful that I could find something that would both work for me and not trigger my religious trauma and could pass muster when it came to my skepticism. And I'm grateful for those years of searching because it led me here to Fourth Universalist, where I was welcomed with open arms as an atheist and an atheist that had a tendency to get way too involved in every activity in the congregation as some former Mormons tend to do. But backing up just a minute in my story, um, I remember vid vividly the day years ago that I googled religion for atheists, and I found out that there was a community of people called Unitarian Universalists that were not united by a shared creed or theology, but by shared principles. And in Unitarian Universalism, and in Fourth Universalists more specifically, 
I found a place where I can belong among people who have various spiritual and theological beliefs or none at all. And we all support and affirm, and affirm each other in our own search for truth and meaning. And in the past few years, I've become especially, especially grateful for the openness of Unitarian Universalism because what came next after those terrifying phone conversations was a complete overhaul of my spiritual life and identity and I didn't even have to change religions. So I asked my new friends what their spiritual life looked like and the answers I received were so varied and diverse that I felt relief that there were many options that I could choose from to find my own way. And I started trying some of these spiritual practices that my friends shared with me and I found that some of them weren't very helpful but I was surprised to find that a form of prayer and journaling that I felt was uncomfortably close to some of the spiritual practices of my childhood worked best for me. And Mormons love to journal and they love to pray even more. And I felt an initial aversion to trying these things because I felt that prayer had been used to control me and mislead me and program, program me to believe things that weren't true while I was growing up. And I also felt that the way journaling was taught to me as a Mormon was used to keep me focused on only things that the Mormon church wanted me to think about or pay attention to. But in this new period of openness and experimentation in my life, I felt free to mix old school methods of praying with guided meditations, open-ended journaling prompts, and visualizations that felt deeply spiritual and alive with meaning and healing. And I felt a growing sense of trust and comfort within me but trust in what? Comfort from what? What did I actually believe in now? And during this period, I found a new therapist that specialized in trauma recovery and recovery from PTSD. And I started engaging in therapies I'd never tried before, including EMDR, somatic experiencing, internal family systems, and sensory motor, ther sensory motor therapy. And all of these therapies centered on the wisdom of the body and the physical manifestations of trauma and healing. And my new therapist was also very supportive in my desire to integrate my search for an authentic and useful spirituality into our work. Now, after confronting particularly challenging fears and blocks in my therapy, I found that new avenues were opening up for me in my spiritual practices, and I wasn't afraid to lean into the comfort and the peace that I found there. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was building new inner resources and connections to my sense of belonging in the world. And those things would eventually form the basis for my new sense of psychological well-being, and also for a theology that encompassed everything I've experienced in my life so far, including my dedication to science and rationality. More on that in a few minutes. And as I struggled to make sense of what was happening to me, I kept coming across new research that said that psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy was being studied in clinical trials, and it was getting outstanding results in recovery from PTSD and treatment-resistant depression and other difficult-to-treat mental health conditions. And there was also research out of Johns Hopkins with patients with terminal cancer diagnoses that showed that it can have an impact on people's connection to a sense of meaning, spirituality, and even their ability to face death with peace and equanimity. I wanted help with all of those things, so I searched for providers for these experiences. And options in the United States were limited, but I found there were many parts of the world where these substances were legal to use in therapeutic settings and indigenous ceremonies. 
and I was lucky enough to participate in both therapeutic environments and in indigenous ceremonies both at home and abroad, where I found great healing with these substances. And I found that they both accelerated my progress in therapy and in my search for a personal spirituality that worked for me. And in response to all of these experiences, I decided to train to become a psychedelic assisted therapist myself, utilizing ketamine, the only federally legal psychedelic substance in the United States. And while I was reading the latest research on trauma healing during my training, I began to see connections between what had happened to me to cause me to end up in a state of PTSD, as well as the method methods that were working to help me recover. Researchers discovered that one of the greatest sources of damage that can happen in a person's development is a disconnection from the self and, let's see, and our connection to how our emotions show up in our bodies. I saw how being raised in a high-demand religion like Mormonism had interrupted my connection to myself through requiring obedience to authority figures that sometimes contradicted my personal integrity and my ideas about what was best for me individually. I also saw how many of the choices that I made in my romantic relationships led me away from my own sense of inner security. And I also saw that the way that my temperament caused me to cope with the family environment I grew up in was to become a people pleaser that abandoned myself and disconnected from my own feelings in order to placate the feelings of others. And I even saw that the way I responded to talk therapy for many years was to place my therapist's opinions or what I thought their unspoken opinions were above my own intuition and gut feelings about what was best for me. I largely treated therapy as an intellectual exercise and I didn't know how to read signals from my body about what I was experiencing. And I came to understand from all the work I had done over the past several years that to recover, in order to recover from PTSD it was a form of rescuing and reclaiming all the parts of myself that I had unknowingly abandoned and building up practices and tools that would help me never abandon myself again. And the new theology I was building and helping, was helping me to do just that. I found that it was useful for me to reach out for support and guidance to something that could provide unconditional support and presence, even if I wasn't sure, and I'm still not sure, exactly what's happening when I do it. I found that a book by Nancy Ellen Abrams titled A God That Could Be Real articulated a hypothesis that I could get behind, that any God that could actually exist would need to be bound by the laws of the known universe and science, and whether a God like that actually exists isn't even the point. The point is that when I implement these practices in my life as if a source of support like that exists, it connects me back to myself and to the world around me, without the drawbacks of the high demand religion I was raised in. And that it dovetails quite nicely with the other therapies and the tools that I had learned to connect to myself and the wisdom of my own body, intuition, and my life experience. I want to pause my story here to say that I don't believe everyone needs a spiritual life, and there's nothing wrong with needing one either. The 15 years that I spent as an atheist are very important to me, and I always felt disrespected when someone suggested that my life was somehow less because I was an atheist. Although I was searching for a spiritual life for much of that time, I didn't know if I would ever find one, and I had come to terms with that. I preferred to have one, even though part of me feared it, but if it didn't happen for me, that didn't mean that my life was any less meaningful. I've come to believe that what matters is that each of us has a connection to ourselves and to our sense of belonging in the world, 
and spirituality isn't necessary for that. It just became useful for me. And I want to close with an experience I had in one particular ceremony I was fortunate to participate in based on the teachings of the Bwiti tribe in Gabon, a country on the western coast of Africa. The Bwiti have built their tradition around the use of a psychedelic plant called iboga that grows naturally in their forests. With the assistance of iboga in this ceremony, I was able to look deeply within my inner world and see the foundation for my new sense of well-being. It was a vision of my own face, staring lovingly back at me with tenderness in her eyes. She also showed me visions of my daughter and I dancing together and cherishing our time together. She was telling me, this is where your true self dwells, here at the core of your being, staying present with yourself and your daughter. Welcome home. May each of us find that home within ourselves. Hi everyone, welcome to Getting the Message. I'm Benny and I'm the RE assistant. And I'm Melanie Christian. I'm the director of administration here at Fourth Universalist. Perfect, so now we're doing Getting the Message and I wanted to ask Melanie a couple of questions about her sermon. So the first one is, what was inspiration for this sermon? So for this sermon, um, it was really about my journey of leaving Mormonism and coming to Fourth Universalist. And it's also tied to um, my journey of kind of healing from some PTSD and what it takes in order to do that, pretty simply, yeah. And I wanted to also ask, what is the main message you wanted to get across from your sermon? So the biggest message was that we really have within ourselves everything that we need in order to heal from all the things that life can throw at us. And sometimes we need assistance to get to that, but in the deepest level, um, there are some things that only we can know about what is best for us and for our lives. And when we lose that connection to that voice inside of us that tells us what's best for us, um, that's when we can lose our way the most. Um, I think that, you know, it's not easy to find that voice, and that's why a lot of people, you know, like me, needed assistance to get there. And there are a lot of things that can help. Um, and I wanted to share some of the things that helped me. Yes. And just to go over some of them, can you tell us um, which, what was the most influential way that helped you get your voice back? Man, there were so many and I, I go through them in the sermon. So hopefully it's clear, but I feel like um, really it was kind of the main point of my sermon which was that for me it took regaining a spiritual life mm. yeah so when mm -hmm. I left Mormonism mm -hmm. um, it really um, something happened to me where I just couldn't believe in anything other than what I could see taste touch hear smell mm -hmm. and I think I needed that period of time and I also think that that's uh, an okay place to live like if that yeah. is where you feel comfortable if that's what you believe in if that's mm -hmm you know, your, your perspective on life, your philosophy, um, you know, that's wonderful. And I've spent 15 years kind of in that place. And I really like came to feel like this is, this is good life, a good life to like live in what is, a, a, you know, that I can kind of see and mm -hmm. touch and taste and smell and hear. And for me, I don't know what it was, but I, I got to a point, some things happened to me where some of the pain that I was feeling was so deep that I needed a source of comfort mm -hmm. that 
I did I couldn't access from just those five senses mm -hmm. and um, there were a lot of things that helped me that was beyond that but for me the thing that brought it all together was a spiritual life and what that exactly means is very different for every person I think the thing that was hardest for me was even trying to have a spiritual life because of the way mm -hmm. that I was raised that there was only one way yep and mm -hmm. when that way didn't work for me it just kind of there it was such a foundational belief in my heart and my soul and my mind that there's only one way that I even though I tried a lot of other ways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was like does not compute you know like it wasn't working mm -hmm. so but it got to the point where um, I was so desperate because I was suffering so much that I was willing to try things I hadn't tried before I was willing to go places I hadn't gone before and face fears I hadn't faced before um, because I needed something I needed something. So I tried a lot of different things and it was only through trying all those different things that I found what works for me. And that's what I love about spirituality is it's so individual mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it, it, um, it can be a deep expression of your own inner world and life mm -hmm. and a relationship you have to yourself and to the world mm -hmm. and to the universe um, and to whatever else is out there, mm -hmm. which we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and being able to have that kind of a relationship where it's very individual, I feel like is what makes the difference rather than following just one way that everybody has to fit into. Very strictly. As someone who grew up Catholic, oh. <laughs> uh, everyone understands, whoever grew up Catholic understands the, I really relate to the mm. idea that there's one specific way. Mm -hmm. And although there were, you know, and still are, of course, beautiful traditions and lessons that I learned through my upbringing, I thoroughly, I, as soon as you said that, my heart went, mm. I know what you mean in a certain way. I definitely That's probably why mean. we're both TV. Right. <laughs> Anyone who has come from the same backgrounds as us definitely understand. Right. And another question I had was, mm. is there anything that you would have wanted to add to your sermon that you didn't? I have a feeling the sermon is a little bit too long. I've never written one before, okay. so I couldn't put a lot of things in. And even some things after I finished writing, writing it and I was on the way to the, to the congregation this morning, I wished I had put in. And one of those things is a lot of the things that I speak about in the sermon are things that um, you need a lot of privilege to access. A spiritual life is not one thing you need privilege to access. So I hope that because that's like the main centerpiece of the sermon that that's accessible mm -hmm. to people. But I do talk a lot about kind of new therapies that oh. I went to. Yeah. And a lot of the people that offer these therapies, even like psychologists or social workers or things like that, mm -hmm. clinical social workers, um, they, because they're up on the latest research and they have a lot of experience and they're some of the best in their field, um, they have a high fee. And they don't take insurance. Yeah, and I was able to pay for that. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to pay for that. And for a lot of folks who are looking for those particular kind of therapies, um, they can be inaccessible because of cost. Um, so I wish I had said something about that in the sermon, mm -hmm. um, that there's a, a privilege attached here to a lot of the things I'm speaking about, and that isn't right. And we should have a world where people can access the care they need. Because mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. certainly needed it. I needed all the things that I spoke about in the sermon, and I don't know where I'd be today if I didn't have that. And it, it's wrong that there are so many people that need some of those things who could benefit from them. Um, I mean, I don't know which ones would work for which people, but they should at least get the chance to try to see which ones work for them. And for a lot of people that want to try those things, they can't. 
So um, I wish I had said more about that in mm -hmm. the sermon. That is understandable completely. Anyone who has tried to find a therapist who's in network or have found a therapist who isn't in network, but you know, you see the out of network fee, you completely understand why, but also ah, that is quite $250 once a week is pretty, it's, it's pretty costly as a lot of people. Yeah. That's a New York rate right there. They, right. Yeah. I feel like that's, I don't know about everyone else, but New York, I think that's kind of the, the baseline. So yeah. that's a, you know, really important yeah. part of it. And this is a tricky subject for me because I'm a therapist now part-time. Mm -hmm. I work here part-time and I work part-time as a therapist. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, there, there are some slots in my practice where I accept insurance and I do sliding scale and things like that, but I can't make it in New York city on the fees that insurance will pay. Nope. I just can't. And especially that's a whole nother conversation. If anybody wants to talk about how insurance treats mind medicine versus mm -hmm. body medicine, I don't even want to try to like separate it into those two things, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> it seems like that's the case. And I mean, that could be a part of a conversation about how spirituality is so much more accessible and can mm -hmm. definitely help a lot of people. It is a lot of, I don't know, I consider it a mind medicine in a I mean, lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, it can be, and it's, you know, very beautiful. So that's that's a really interesting point that, mm -hmm. you know, thank you for sharing that and the, getting the message. Mm -hmm. I think my last question is, if you could get a specific part of your sermon and make it so that everyone is able to, you know, hear it outside of the church. Mm. So this isn't just for the ears of, you know, you, you people who probably understand, you know, a lot of where you're coming from. But just mm -hmm. if we could project it and have mm -hmm. everyone hear it, what would, what would be that, you know, spiel? Yeah, I could say it in two words. Trust yourself. Ooh, that's snappy. I like it. Yeah. Trust yourself. Oh, that's so interesting. Again, as someone who came from a Catholic past and... You know, has family is still practicing. I thoroughly, thoroughly understand that. Mm -hmm. I this is kind of a personal question, but I want to ask sure, you. Sure. Why do you think focusing on trusting yourself isn't a big thing that was included in previous spiritual? You know how you were taught your spirituality growing up. Because I would have thought that you know we're in this vessel, mm -hmm. we're here, we're going to be here physically for a while. Why not? also trust ourselves a little bit this is more of a personal mm -hmm, question mm -hmm. this very good question and it's something that i've studied i've studied this the psychology of religion and how religions have developed mm -hmm. the history of religions and i also have studied you know cult recovery and mm -hmm. recovery from high demand religions and things and religious trauma mm -hmm. and what i found in my reading and studies and experience is a lot of organizations operate you know too far on the side at all organizations shouldn't but even religious organizations operate with coercive control sometimes mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and in order to have power so that the organization has power mm -hmm, and if people mm -hmm. trust themselves they may not obey the mm -hmm. religious authorities over them that's how they retain their power um you know and i think for a lot of people it comes from a good place like a lot mm -hmm. of us just were Cult acculturated into the religion you're born and then people mm -hmm. follow that path and they're doing it from a good heart and yes. they believe this is what will save people or help people is if they follow this path and whatever I need to do to teach them that they need to obey this path is right mm -hmm. and I think for most people that's where it comes from exactly. and I just mm -hmm. think organizations also have their it's like an entity that has a mind of its own mm -hmm. so even yes. though there are all these good-hearted people in the organizations trying to spread love and spread the you know a saving path mm -hmm 
there's this group think that takes over an organizational behavior mm -hmm. where the organization wants to perpetuate itself. Group think that's so interesting. Yeah. The psychology of religion. Thank yeah. you again, Socialing. This is so interesting. And I want to ask you for book recommendations after this. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time to answer these questions, give a little bit more information that you weren't able to fit in the sermon. Mm -hmm. um, and again, thank you again so much for such a vulnerable sermon, for you know being open with the congregation and also all of us that are listening right now. Um, hopefully someone will you know hear this story and say, wow, I relate to this and I, I hear her message. I hope so. Thank you again so much. Thanks, and Benny. Of course, of <laughs> course. And we'll see you guys in our next sermon. Bye, everybody. Bye.